0: Welcome to a new podcast series from the Arts, Humanities and Social Sciences Faculty at Queen's University, Belfast, examining the debate around constitutional futures. I'm Professor Colin Harvey from the School of Law at Queen's and I'll be chairing our, our conversation. The theme of this podcast is, does the Union State have a future? Does the UK have a future? Where is the debate at present? And where does it need to go next? Keeping in mind that people will have very different views and preferences about constitutional futures across these islands. Absolutely delighted that an exceptionally distinguished expert panel joins us to share their reflections. To say that they are well placed is a vast uh, understatement. And I could spend the rest of this episode just describing their various achievements, but I'm not going to do that. I'll keep the intros relatively brief. Professor Jennifer Todd is a fellow at the Geary Institute for Public Policy, UCD, Research Director at the Institute for British Irish Studies, UCD and now Emeritus Professor in Politics and International Relations at UCD. Dr. Eitan Tanem is Associate Professor of International Peace Studies at Trinity College Dublin. Professor Aileen Mahard is Professor of Public Law and Human Rights at Durham Law School. And Professor Michael Keating is a research professor at the University of Aberdeen and from 2013 to 2020 was director of the Centre on Constitutional Change based at the University of Edinburgh. As I say, I could say much, much more about our wonderful expert panel today, but we want to have a discussion about constitutional futures as well. I just want to thank you all for participating in this QUB podcast series reflecting on the constitutional present and constitutional futures. Thank you all for taking the time to be with us today. Okay, on to some questions to to get us started. Uh, Initial question would be in two sentences, and bearing his mind, we're, we're, we're keeping our audience with us today in two sentences. If you had to tell us what you're working on at present right now that's relevant to the topic under discussion, uh, what would that be? Tell us something about what you're working on at present relevant to this subject in two sentences. Jennifer.
1: Sentence one, I've been talking to British elites about how they understand the union in Northern Ireland. Conservatives. Sentence two, um, I'm also talking to everyday people that don't identify as unionists and nationalists in Northern Ireland to see how they think about the union.
0: That's great, Jennifer. E10.
2: I'm looking at, in my book, which I have now gone back to properly, um, looking at British-Irish relations in the 21st century, which I think I've said to Colin before, um, the contract was signed in 2016, just before the Brexit referendum, and the um, commissioning editor said, don't worry about Brexit, I'm sure it won't happen. So I've (laughs) I've been quite uh, delayed with that book, but that's what I'm working on. It's looking at the totality of relations um, between uh, the islands, between Northern Ireland and Ireland, um in the context now of, of current events. So that's the main thing I'm, I'm working on at the
0: moment. Fantastic! I'm also part much. of the
2: aaron's project with another, another <laughs> members
3: here.
0: Absolutely. Eileen. <laughs> so.
3: uh, hi. Um, so the the most immediate thing on my to do list is to finish off a oh, chapter on secession and UK constitutional law. Um, and I'm also I've also been doing work on changing devolved competences, um, particularly in the light of Brexit, so work on the UK Internal Market Act, Um, but I'm also interested in the ways in which judicial attitudes to um, devolved competence are changing in the light of what I see as a kind of supercharged version of parliamentary sovereignty, which I think we saw uh, very clearly in yesterday's um, Supreme Court decision on the UNCRC um, European Charter of Local Self-Government references. So, yeah, that's two
0: things I'm working Fantastic. Michael?
4: I've been directing a big project on the effect of Brexit, on the constitutional relationships amongst the nations of these islands. Idea is that the European Union membership provided an important external framework, a support system for the devolution settlement. Without Brexit, then, or sorry, with Brexit, then, uh, a lot of issues have been exposed. Uh, the devolution the, the settlement, whatever. Pressure, but it's also exposed issues within the UK Constitution that go way back to the Union of 1707 through the Union of 1800 and so on, in which issues like sovereignty, critical issues have never been expressed. They've always been in abeyance or politicians have worked their way around them. These sovereignty issues now can't be escaped in the context of Brexit. And that's both fundamental questions
0: about the Constitution of the United Kingdom. Thank you very much. Thank you everyone for that, that introduction. So well, the next question is, or is the why question? There's been an intensification of interest in discussion around the State of the Union, in fact, intensification of interest on the conversation around constitutional futures across these islands generally. You all are very, very aware that not a week goes by without a new initiative, without some comment. In fact, at times it's hard to keep up with, with what's happening. I want to ask the why question. Why is this happening? why this intensification of focus on constitutional futures across these islands and on the State of the Union? Aileen?
3: Um, well, I think, you know, it's an expression of of, of anxiety. I, mean, I, I think about Colin Kidd's idea of, of banal unionism or you know, wallpaper unionism. The union was most secure when people just didn't talk about it. So the, the fact that they're talking about it is itself um, an indication of anxiety, and that's anxiety that's been building for quite a long time, and maybe it's, it's never gone away in, in relation to, to, to Northern Ireland. Um, but obviously, blown up by Brexit. And I know we'll come back to, to, to Brexit later on. But Brexit has has significantly um, unsettled key expectations about how um, how the union operates, how the devolved settlements um operate, it has changed attitudes, particularly at the centre, and, and as as Michael said, it's kind of brought these questions of well, where exactly does sovereignty lie, which were held in abeyance. It's brought them um to the fore and required them to be to be addressed. But but these are you know these are really hard issues to address. So, you know, it's not that there's an easy solution to any of these problems, because we're really talking about very deep seated features of the UK as a state, of the UK's constitution, you know, long term trends in terms of political divergence, um, protagonists with very different desires um, uh, as to the nature of of, of the constitutional future for, for, for the UK. So, you know, we get multiple proposals, some of which I think, you know, are no more than tinkering, which things that seem unlikely to make much difference. On the other hand, you get some kind of radical proposals that seem um, pretty much unworkable, whether those are sort of radical proposals for root and branch constitutional reform or radical proposals for abolition of devolution. You know, these are, are things that, that, that seem difficult to, to do. So, So I think yeah, this intensification of discussion is, is, is a reflection of anxiety and of the difficulty of the of the problem that needs to be addressed.
0: Thank you, Elaine. Michael?
4: This is really our version of a process that's happening across Europe and across the world, the, the crisis of the state, the welfare state, internationalisation, the rescaling, what I call rescaling, the shifting authority upwards and downwards and sideways. But in the UK, it's hit us with intensive force because all of these crises of the state are happening simultaneously. They're projected on a very complex and under-theorised and under-formulated constitutional uh, arrangements. And the Millennium Settlement, that is the Devolution Settlements of 1999, because there were several of them, were an attempt to try and fix the problem, but they were always open-ended, the Northern Ireland Settlement explicitly open-ended without a clear telos or a clear endpoint, because it was able to encompass different views about what the future of Ireland would be and allow those to mature. And then in Scotland, similarly, there have been two further devolution acts since the original one and the debate is still going on because everybody's always realised this was a journey towards a new kind of state. But this has been intensified because of a number of other political crises and because of Brexit. So all of these things have come at the same time. And the ironical thing in all of this is just when we've learned that sovereignty means many things and nothing, it's a very complex concept. The response to all this has been the assertion of absolute sovereignty claims uh, that are impossible in the modern world. So that's why there's really no easy fix. There's no simple resolution to this problem. We need to rethink the whole nature of political authority and what sovereignty means in the modern world. And that politicians have not. Politicians on, on all sides have failed to live up to that challenge.
0: Thank you, Etain. The why question: Why is this happening?
2: Yeah, my answer is similar uh, to the the two previous ones. Particularly, my class was we're in, we're in the same field. I mean, I think there are three levels. There's there's this island, and then there's the UK, and then there's the broader global and European context. So, I mean, my first point would be um, just as Michael said: there's a phenomenon across Europe, and um, if not across the world, I mean, at least in the US, um, with the growth of populism and um, this sort of heightened Uh, sort of rhetoric, it seems to be not just between these islands, we see that. So I think that's one issue. In terms of why I'm not even going to attempt to answer that question. (laughs) I think it's outside my pay grade.
1: Um,
2: In terms of the island, I think Brexit, as as both speakers have said, is is a huge factor. And it has been both a catalyst for tensions and issues that would be, you know, under the surface and also a cause in itself um, and I think without a doubt, it's it's been transformative um, in terms of um, it as a catalyst. I think there are other tensions which have been brewing within Northern Ireland. Perceptions from some unionists that the Good Friday Agreement wasn't serving their interests or that there was an unfair influence of nationalism and all the things which, through the decades, you know, we have heard in the past, they did seem to become exacerbated. And Colin McCall, um, your colleague in Queens, has written about the culture wars and um, sort of really that we're developing from early on in the millennium. And um, so there are issues there of tension um, where the agreement was not seen to be working, uh, uh, perceived to be working. And as Claire Sugden said, in Trinity, perceptions matter, you know, whether it was real or not, it was not perceived to be working. So all these things are under the surface and Brexit then really acted as this catalyst and in itself is a huge challenge um, you know, to deal with and to manage, no matter what side of the ideological divide we're on, it, it clearly is a transformative change. And I agree very much, it, it's created anxiety, um, which feeds into that sometimes this kind of dogmatism and emotionalism. And then finally, the role of social media, again, not my area, um, but just, you know, anecdotally, you can see the, the sort of emotionalism, the venom, the lack of empathy, which it seems to Reflect and, of course, not the whole population, but it must have some kind of influence for a pocket of the population. So complex question and a very <laughs> complex answer. And I tried to attempt an,
0: to answer a little of it. Absolutely, what we're here to do: bring out the complexities. As well, Jennifer, the why question: Why is this happening? Um,
1: hmm. If you go back to the to the international moment of the 1990s and early 2000s. What you see with respect to the Union of Northern Ireland and Great Britain is that both Irish and British governments, and that includes the Conservatives like Peter Brook and and, and John Major, both Irish and British governments took advantage of that moment to remake the Union for Northern Ireland. And what changed and why we're having the problems now happened before Brexit. it happened with the Conservative Party and within the Conservative Party, and some people put it as early as 2008, 2009, in becoming um, more assertive, more muscular, more sovereignist, and less, less understanding of what the new union was, the Labour Party followed, Brexit added to the problems, but the problems were already there by the time the Conservatives entered government by 2010, they were shown in the flags protest of 2012. And what happened was that Unionists in Northern Ireland, who had been beginning to come to terms with the new order, um, followed the lead of the Conservatives. And there you get the the, the follow on um, antagonisms and so on, and the problem is the sovereignism of the Conservatives, followed by the Labour Party, followed by and encouraged by the the government of Britain, um, with unionists being being encouraged to be recalcitrant. That's great. Thank you,
0: Jennifer. Thank you all that really was around the why question And, and there was a b word that came up a few times there in the responses uh unsurprisingly and that that was brexit so i want to move on now to thinking about the impact that brexit has had is having and also where this is likely to go in the future what's been the impact of brexit but i want to also cast your mind to that future's question, you know, where might this all be going next? Slightly unfair, number of unfair questions in this, but it it impact of Brexit, relationships around these islands and where is this going next?
2: Clearly it has had a hugely negative impact. Um, it has exposed, as I've just said, you know, so many weaknesses, but in my area specifically, I suppose, um, over the past few years has been on the British-Irish diplomatic relationship. And I think it's exposed weaknesses there that were probably there already. Jennifer has written before about um, that much of the cooperation depended on the convergence of interests and, you know, a concern that that needed to be, the relationship needed to be institutionalised and formalised because if those interests didn't converge, particularly the British government's, the cooperation could collapse and you know this is i think what we are seeing very much and so as colin and others will know um i have espoused and, and advocated for the the biigc among other people who've also advocated for it um of strand three of the good friday agreement which brings together the heads of government and leaders of government to meet regularly That that really didn't meet so i think following on from what jennifer was saying as well about the tory party and the, the british dimension to influencing unionist insecurity the british irish relationship being on the same page um was vital to managing brexit you know brexit need not have been a disaster a soft brexit would not have been so destabilizing Um, a brexit managed where both governments were in communication before the referendum more closely um, where there was that sort of 90s um, I suppose mood music and on the same page element would have minimized a lot of these tensions. So uh, I think Brexit in itself for very obvious reasons the UK was coming out of the EU framework, that EU framework had been the context for so much of the relationship between the islands and for Northern Ireland. Even if it wasn't mentioned very often in the agreement, it was very much the framework for the peace process. So in itself, it was clear it was going to be hugely damaging. But on top of that, any way of managing it, of, of limiting the damage was undermined very much by a, a very quick weakening of the British Irish relationship. And I think everyone would agree it it has not been so bad in decades. Um, so I think that is 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 really where where the problems lie. And then beyond that, within that, it leads to a spiraling of problems within Northern Ireland in terms of tensions um, between communities. So that would be my my answer.
0: Jennifer Brexit, the type of Brexit,
1: um, what it's done in part, and. Um, is to to make a major difference between the understandings of what's going on within the British political system and within Northern Ireland and, indeed, the Irish political system. So there's, there's a conflict of understandings. There's also a conflict of popular understandings. The collective imaginary in England at the minute is at odds with the collective imaginaries in Northern Ireland, even the unionist collective imaginaries and the ways that um, neither Norse, people that are neither unionist nor nationalist, who um, are a bit undecided or have other priorities, the way they understand their relations. So um, you just get clashes, and of course, clashes with the British collective imaginary and the European one.
0: Thank you, Jennifer. Michael? put in a
4: plug for my book, which has appeared. <laughs> so, uh, it, it argues that the Brexit was predicated on a particular view of the UK Constitution, what we call the Westminster view, parliamentary sovereignty. Now, ironically, after the referendum, that came ra- way rapidly to popular sovereignty, but it was still the idea that the UK was a unitary state, uh, and therefore membership of the European Union was constitutionally uh, anomalous. There was incompatibility. Uh, between the two, whereas my argument is that if you see the UK not as a unitary state based upon parliamentary or popular sovereignty with a single demos, a single people, a single telos, and a single source of sovereignty, but as a plurinational union based upon the principle of consent, is actually a very good fit with the European Union and the way the European Union is is, is set up. So these two fundamental different understandings of the UK Constitution play into Brexit and amongst the Brexit people there was a fundamental misunderstanding of what the European Union is is all about. Because in other countries they don't say it's a fundamental threat to national sovereignty. They argue about the division of powers and so on. But, But sovereignty is being rethought in all kinds of ways. Therefore, Brexit was accompanied not only by this assertion on the part of the UK government of absolute external sovereignty, but also the recovery of parliamentary supremacy as a principle to govern the internal constitution of the United Kingdom, those go together. That raises all kinds of problems about the nature of the settlement, particularly the Northern Ireland settlement. Was it just explicitly based on multiple identities and not defining the ultimate aim respect for different communities? And so on? But it also underlay the Scottish settlement too, and it was developing as an idea in in Wales. That's the, the the fundamental problem with what's going on here, and and why then you're getting this really new kind of sovereignty. Alien referred to this new kind of unionism. It, it it's not entirely new, but it's a recuperation of a very intransigent notion of what the union is all about. And then, if you add to that questions about borders, questions about the market, questions of the borders are fundamental, of course, in the the island of Ireland, but they're also relevant to Scotland. There are all kinds of things that have come up, which are simply not anticipated in London. I was talking to people in London around the time of the Brexit referendum. They either didn't know about these things or they assumed that they would just go away because they weren't terribly important. Uh, And there's no easy way uh, out of those dilemmas. There's no easy fix to put the Constitution back together again, because now you've got a clash of, of of different nationalisms because unionism itself has become a nationalism rather than an encompassing concept that embraces multiple identities. It itself has become a form of, of, of nationalism and therefore defines itself as incompatible with the national aspirations of other parts of the United Kingdom.
0: Thank you, Michael. Aileen, Brexit.
3: Um, yeah I mean I I would agree with with much of what's been said already. So I mean I think Brexit was inevitably going to have a destabilizing I- effect on the territorial constitution because of the way in which competences were intertwined across sort of three levels of government and then that has to become two levels of government so that was a problem that had to be dealt with and then it's obviously you know greatly exacerbated by territorial divergence in the in the referendum result and in the way in which um, questions of EU membership are tied up with, with nationalist movements in, in um both Scotland and um and Northern Ireland. Um but even if you'd taken all of that out, there would still have been a, a constitutional problem to address. And 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 the real I think one of the, the, the real problems is that um you know it the removal of the uh, of the EU constraint, which constrained the set the UK level as well as devolved levels, that, that newly exposes the devolved governments to uh parliamentary sovereignty and it greatly exacerbates um the asymmetrical nature of, of the Union. There there are there's uh the minority status of Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland is 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 exposed by Brexit in a way that I think was was kept a little bit uh, under wraps before. Um, as Michael said, the territorial dimension of Brexit really wasn't taken seriously, viewed as a bit of a nuisance, and I think he's right to say that um, there is a lack of understanding and, and a lack of interest, actually, in what goes on in the other parts of the UK. And that's not, not, that's not new. You could see it back during the 2014 independence referendum. You know, while in Scotland we were talking about that endlessly. If you went to Westminster, they were talking at that stage about the possibility of a, of a EU withdrawal referendum and, and and the Scottish independence referendum really barely impinged until uh, the, 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 the kind of very late stages. And I think the, the other feature is was something that's also been mentioned, which is, I think, the, the intolerance of constraint by this particular government, and it's not limited to devolution. There is an intolerance of constraints from parliament, there is an intolerance of constraints from the courts, but there is also an intolerance of constraints from, um, from devolved centres of power. So, so the attitude to devolution is it's a nuisance, we would get rid of it if we could, if we can't get rid of it, let's try to contain it, let's put in, keep, ensure that the devolved governments the devolved legislatures are kept firmly in their place. And that leads to really adversarial behaviour by the UK government, and it leads to unilateral action, you know, unilateral imposition of the UK Internal Market Act, which is really quite extraordinary. Very, very important reform to the devolution settlements, but done uh, on a unilateral basis with, with barely any consultation uh, and no consent from 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 the devolved, so uh, yeah, a, a variety of reasons why it's it's been problematic.
0: That's great Brexit. Uh, it's going to run and run. I suspect this discussion, but I just want Alien just take follow on from a few things you were saying there, and, and whoever wants to come in on this question. But as you you know that it's a recurring exam question in all constitutional law exams around the UK, for the question recurring discussion about a written constitution for the UK or codified constitution and that's sort of resurging again in the sort of post-Brexit context with an intensified discussion of that. I just wonder, Aileen, how you know realistic, feasible that conversation actually is, given some of the things that you've all talked about, about the state of relationships around the UK at the moment.
3: I mean, I, I think uh, uh, in the immediately foreseeable future, it's it's not realistic at all. I, I mean, I don't think um, the UK government is is interested remotely in in a written constitution that that might constrain the powers of you know that are available to it via um, parliamentary sovereignty. But even some of the 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 other conversations around about. Codification. So, if you think about things like the Act of you know, proposed Act of Union Bill, which uh, which would partially codify the Constitution, um, and and maybe some of the, the things that are coming out of of you know, the Labour Party, Labour Party thinking on this, they they won't go to parliamentary sovereignty. So they're very noticeable for for wanting to leave parliamentary sovereignty intact, and that's you know, of course you could have a written constitution that included a principle of parliamentary sovereignty, that's that's that, that's a coherent position to adopt, but it's not one that will resolve any of the problems that we have um, at, at present. So it seems to me that, yeah, that, that this isn't going anywhere because it's either, well either there's no interest or to the extent that there is interest, it, it, what is being proposed is inadequate to address the, the, the
0: problems we have. Would anybody else like to come in on that question about constitutional reform within the UK? Yeah, could I? Yeah, um, on, on
4: that. there are two types of constitution. One is a constitution to ratify and celebrate and build on the fact that there is agreement, consensus on what I call the demos, who are the people who tell us what, what is the purpose of this constitution uh, and on uh, shared values, the ethos and on sovereignty, those are the key elements. And there are constitutions which are designed to cope with the fact that there is not consensus on the, who are the people and what is the aim and where sovereignty lies. Now all the proposals, I think this is where Ireland is coming to as well, all the proposals we've seen so far are based upon the idea that there is consensus. Now, The Northern Ireland settlement is explicitly based upon the notion there isn't consensus. It doesn't mean we can't live together, it doesn't mean we cannot have governing arrangements. The United Kingdom is that kind of State. So, all this talk about having a citizens' convention and we'll all agree about everything uh, is is, it will simply expose the fact that we don't agree on these things. Now, one reason why uh, we don't agree on these things is not actually because we have different values. And again, this is coming from the unionist, the Gordon Brown camp. Well, we all share the same views about the welfare state and liberty and democracy and so on. These are British values. Well, it's true that people in Scotland uh, and and England and Wales and and across the island of Ireland do increasingly share these basic values. That's not really the point, because even if the UK breaks up, we'll still share those values. (laughs) Well, we'll, we'll, an independent Scotland would have a, a national health service just as the rest of the UK would have a national health service. The Republic of Ireland maybe is a little bit different there. But the notion that because we all have the same basic values, therefore should we be in the same state, just is illogical. In fact, it's just the contrary. The very fact that the various nationalists, be they British, Scottish, Irish, English or whatever, share the same fundamental uh, values, uh, is really makes the resolution of the conflict more difficult rather than easier, because these various nationalisms are trying to appropriate these values and saying that we are—they're are of course universal values. There are no—there are no things called British values. They're universal values. But this new British values is trying to appropriate them and saying you're getting these values and these rights because you're British. That plays into this uh, endless argument about the British Charter of Rights. You'll have these rights because you're because, because you're British. Uh, whereas the other nationalists are, are trying to appropriate them as, as, as well. Uh, this is the irony. Uh, My Canadian colleague turned politician, Stefan Dion, called it de Tocqueville's paradox. Uh, With the convergence of values, you get a political divergence because they're competing in the same normative space. They're competing to own the same kinds of values. Uh, And as long as UK unionism says, well, you'll only get your rights to a health service and to liberty and democracy and so on by being British, they will lose the argument and that's why they are losing the argument.
0: Anybody else like to come in on that question? Yeah.
2: Um, I'm perhaps less theoretical, but I think um, what we've all been touching on or observing is a very different conception um, among a significant element of the British elite, if if not the people or the English, um, on various aspects related to the constitution. So I'm not even sure how, I mean, there are fundamental values that are ostensibly held in common. But I think there are a great many differences, and we see that specifically, again, coming back to my area, but in, in perceptions of the agreement and what it means. Um, in you know, in the work that I've done over the past few years, and it's very clear even in the media, there are very different perceptions of what the agreement means. Um, and I think that has implications for the idea of a codified or non-codified constitution, that um, there isn't a consensus, as far as I can see, on the need for that. There's a very, very different tradition, which has been exposed again by Brexit. It's one of the many things which we've already said in this session and the idea of sovereignty and what it means. The idea of pooled sovereignty isn't really accepted by a significant chunk of people. So I would be very negative Um, and I think it it exposes a, a huge element of the I think the difference between us that I didn't realize was there being a very 90s person. Um, you know, <laughs> I thought we all had this <laughs> harmony of views and we're all part of the, the pluralist tradition in that sense. But I think there are very many differences which which impede a codified constitution.
4: Can I, can I a point of clarification, I agree with what Etienne is saying. But I think we're using values in a slightly different way. Okay. I'm talking about social and economic values, which are actually converging. Uh, and Etienne is talking about where those values should be realised the institutions. And that is where the difference is. That's where these real differences about the tell us where we are going and where sovereignty lies. And that's sometimes we sometimes lose track of that in, in the in the debate. I think sections of unionism in Northern Ireland are probably the only ones who are uh, raise questions about what are otherwise shared values across these islands with the social modernization, secularization, social liberalization. This is happening right across Europe.
0: Jennifer.
1: Yep. I mean, I think you, Colin, said in about 1998 and 1999 that the Good Friday Agreement should be treated like a constitution for Northern Ireland, and um, that if indeed there was a agreed court to um, um, adjudicate it, would indeed have been an interesting way forward. But, I mean, now, when you're talking about a written constitution, are you going to rewrite the agreement within Northern Ireland, the agreement between North and South, and the agreement um, between both and, and and Britain. and um, and again, who's going to be the adjudicator? What court is it? The British Supreme Court is it dual courts? It certainly isn't the European Court now. Um, so, So to talk about a written constitution, certainly for Northern Ireland, seems to be losing what um, or or forgetting what wasn't done in 98 and trying to wipe that over without the negotiations involved.
0: Thank you, Jennifer. And I suppose that takes us on to. I suppose in 1998, many people on the island of Ireland thought they were having a a major constitutional moment around the Good Friday Agreement that would be constitutionally transformative. But then, you know, in a sense to watch that unfold within the UK, constitutional legal order has been one of the more intriguing aspects of the last two decades. And then with what happened around Brexit, I suppose that takes us on really then to the Good Friday Agreement itself, which, you know, when you look back at that document, from 98 places a lot of emphasis on some of the things that many of you are, you're all really essentially talking about in this discussion, which is about relationships across the islands, a three-stranded approach and the sort of values that are there. So I'm just for, for a slightly leading question here, but you know, are, are there lessons, can there be lessons learned from, from that approach that was adopted in the Good Friday Agreement for some of the conversations we're having now? And I suppose go back to you, Jennifer, on that one. Are there lessons in the Good Friday Agreement around what of the problems that we're facing at the moment?
1: I'm going to pass on that, Colin, yep. for the following reason that um I I'm somewhat in despair as to how you get those relationships going with the present British government. But I'll I'll pass on to <laughs> okay.
0: do don't, don't despair, Jennifer. What do you think? Hey, so Friday, I never Karen?
1: despair. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Um, You know, I I feel it's a mantra with me, and I apologise in advance, but as we all know here, the peace process was underpinned very much by John Hume's strategy of British-Irish cooperation, driving the other elements. And, um, you know, I I think the lesson to be learned from the agreement is the success of that approach, um, the importance of high-level, elite-level management and framing negotiations and the importance, as I said, of institutionalised meetings, which of course goes back to the Anglo-Irish agreement and and of course the conference was so opposed by unionists, but that was very central to human strategy to have that institutionalised format. But where I agree with the despair is, um, I wrote recently about this for Ahrens and Rory Montgomery responded And he said that, that the former diplomat, Robert Montgomery, who's a member of the Aarons team as well, and he said that there isn't the political will. You know, it's Catch-22, that there was a level of political will and common interest from the 80s that made that strong relationship happen. That, to me, is a template for for how processes and peace processes can be driven, but it's not there now. So you can't just create the institution and think it'll create the cooperation. So I understand it's Catch-22, but I still firmly believe that in times of crisis, those meetings are even more essential, and, and that that would be the thing to learn and the thing to try and now implement.
0: Jennifer, you want to go back in there on that?
1: Simply to say that that in a book with John Coakley, um, I recently um, looked at the making of a settlement and agreement in Northern Ireland and the way it had slowly been built up by British and Irish elites um, incrementally forming um, um, you know, building on, on one layer um, other layers and so on up to the Good Friday Agreement. And then we also looked at the ways some of the, lim- the building blocks of it had been pulled away in the last 10 years. Um, so I, I guess I just wanted to give a yeah. plug to, to our negotiating Absolutely. settlement in <laughs> Ireland Oxford University Press 2020. <laughs> um which actually talks about this precisely in its final
0: chapter. All material available, all good bookshops, all promotional. (laughs) Michael, in terms of the Good Friday Agreement, any lessons for what we're experiencing now across these islands?
4: The Good Friday Agreement was very interesting from a comparative perspective because it showed how in extremists you could suspend the usual assumptions about the relationship between the state, the nation, sovereignty and borders. Uh, You could do something. Now, the circumstances were here's a piece of territory and neither state, frankly, wants it. Uh, So the the, the big part, the geopolitics was was taken out of it. The European framework helped that. So, indeed, did the um, intervention from the United States. It was was internationalized. And nevertheless, it shows what, what can be done, what creative unionism could get its mind around, because these were unionist governments in the United Kingdom that negotiated this. What's happened to it, well, well, uh, both both Jennifer and Nettem can talk about that in a lot greater greater authority than, than I can. But from the UK side, it's unclear what the position of the UK parties is in relation to Northern Ireland, because the present government just blows hot and cold. On the one hand, we'll go back to the John Major thing. We are neutral. We're just holding the ring. And then this aggressive unionism, of course, that is part of the union. And I talk to people in the various union think, tank, think tanks and so on and say, is Northern Ireland part of your union? And they, Well, yeah, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. We're not sure. We fudge that one. So what is the union? We don't know whether it is four nations or three nations or, 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 or what it is. And that's part of the incoherence of unionism, because if the unionist parties, but particularly the present government, could get their mind around the complexities of Northern Ireland and really understand what it's about. They would find it a lot easier to deal with Scotland uh, instead of imposing this old-fashioned centralising form of unionism on Scotland. And indeed Wales, we haven't talked about Wales very very much there, but Wales in some sense is really very interesting because they've come from a very institutionally very weak position to asserting a particular conception of the union. They're not nationalists, the Welsh government, they are home rulers. And so they're very interesting debates and very interesting ideas that they've been putting forward, which are simply sim- simply ignored. So, yes, the Northern Ireland settlement seems to be misunderstood, uh, but the same is true of the Union in general.
0: Aileen there and re- reference there in the links to Scotland as well and how an understanding of perhaps here might help some of the debates at the moment. What do you think?
3: Well, I mean, if you if you're talking about kind of working across across borders, of course, Intergovernmental relations have been a, a long-standing weakness of the of the devolution arrangements um, in Great Britain as a whole, and and the the arrangements under the Good Friday Agreement, the British Irish Council, um, has it, you know, is clearly superior in some respects to the kind of joint ministerial council model in terms of its greater formality. Uh, it has a standing secretariat. The, the, uh, uh, the chairing of meetings um, rotates around the different uh, the different administrations that are involved. So, um, so there is there's some practical lessons to be learned there, and, and I think you can see some echoes of that in the um, the interim proposals that were published back in March. I think for reform of of intergovernmental relations. In the UK, so there is a there are proposals for greater formality for um, a standing secretariat and, and, and so on. There are two problems with that process, though. One of one is I think everything founders on the question of dispute resolution. Dispute re- disputes, you know, there's a kind of assumption that disputes will be resolved if only we talk about them. But if that doesn't work, then it's kind of well, mm, well, when, then what happens? Well, what happens we know is well, the uk government will just ultimately do what it wants um, and we can't get round that unless we move to some sort of uh, properly federal model um but the other issue at which other people have, have referred to is the question of sincerity i mean these interim proposals were published in march but this process of reforming intergovernmental relations has been going on literally for for years um so, you know, we have to, to to doubt the or question the commitment to actually reforming these, especially when, as I've said already, the way in which the UK government acts is not in keeping with what it says about the need for cooperation and, uh, uh, you know, and, and mutual respect and all of that. It doesn't, you know, actions speak louder than words, I think, uh, in this and uh, as in other areas.
0: Okay, a lot of focus there. Thank you all very much on 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 relationships and we've talked about Brexit. But I suppose I want to take us on to the next question about the UK itself and its future. There's obviously two constituent parts of the UK voted and not to leave the European Union. There's a growing focus, as you're all, all aware, on referendums in Scotland and also on the island of Ireland at the moment, albeit with different constitutional backgrounds and context to those two conversations. So just Really, want interesting getting your thoughts as to you know where we are now, but but essentially where this might all go next. You know, h- how is the standoff between the Westminster government and the Scottish government going to be resolved? And and what happens? You know, on the island of Ireland and Northern Ireland around the provisions for potential concurrent referendums here. You know, as this you know growing conversation momentum builds, essentially. Really interested in getting your thoughts about where this might be going next. Aileen, where, where is this going next? How are some of these standoffs going to be resolved or addressed?
3: Well, I mean, it, it's. I'm going to speak only to Scotland because that's, that's what I know best. It, it is very difficult to see how this standoff will be resolved. The strategy from the UK government, as far as I can make sense of it, is just to postpone. Uh, and and uh, the postpone until when, you know, it, it varies from day to day and from speaker to speaker, you know, is it a generation? Is, is it does it depend on the state of the opinion polls? Does it depend on a mixture of these two things? And what is a generation anyway? And, you know, people say whatever suits them, um, you know, or whatever comes into the into their heads, I think. But so the strategy of holding off, but holding off until what, right? It seems to be uh, holding off until the problem goes away, which I think is understood to mean until the SNP loses office in the Scottish Parliament. The trouble is, I think there is no clear strategy for making that go away other than hoping that it will, hoping that if you you know that the governments will uh, will run out of steam eventually and you know i think there there is of course some evidence that the SNP does look like a tired government maybe not surprisingly in the wake of of covid um it is obviously beginning to f- to face issues about you know internal splits uh frustration um from people who who would you know hope that this um the, the that a referendum could come about more quickly, but but the difficulty with that strategy is twofold. I think one is the lack of credible opposition in Scotland, and the other is that that support for independence is is wider than the SNP. Um, you know there there is, and and the demographics of support for independence are. If I was a unionist, I would be terrified by those demographics uh, because levels of support amongst young people are very, very high. So uh, yeah, I, th- I think the strategy seems to be, uh, well, if we hang on long enough, the SNP will be out of power and then the issue will go away. But I don't see that that, that as being a very credible strategy. What the SNP can do, what Scottish Government can do in the short term to Try and force things that is, is is very difficult. It's not clear what it can do at all. I, I mean, I, I see this as as being very much a, a, a political issue. I think opinion polls really do matter. I think if you know if if levels of support for independence uh, build to I don't know what level, but a a level showing sustained and clear majorities in favour of independence, then I think it's very hard for a UK government to resist, but we're not seeing, we're not seeing dramatic movements in the opinion polls. We've seen gradual movements, we've seen some shifting back in levels of support. So on, you know, from that point of view, we seem to be in, in for a long game as well. So, you know, both sides I think are, are playing a long game and that's frustrating for many people and problematic in, 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 in many ways because you know, it's difficult to predict
0: what might happen over the long term. Thank you Eileen. where where's the discussion going next around referendums on the island of Ireland perhaps?
2: <laughs> uh, it's such a tough question and I feel it shouldn't be but it's, it's so complicated. I think there are two, broad, well the first fact of course is under the agreement that if a majority, if it's felt, there's evidence that a majority support would support a united Ireland, then the Secretary of State must call a referendum. So, you know, currently there isn't clear evidence that majority exists, but clearly Brexit has had an impact and the demographics are an important factor too, um, with, you know, the changing position demographically of unionists. So I think that is a big uh, issue, obviously, in determining what happens in the future and also the increase in the numbers of young people who aren't um, you know, as committed, who are from perhaps unionist backgrounds, but aren't committed to the union in the same way, who would be classified as neither, and who are happy with the situation as it is, but aren't um, as committed. So there's a lot of possible reasons, even though the um, opinion polls do not indicate there's a majority in favour of unification, there are lots of changes occurring, which would imply that could change. So that's one issue. Um, the second issue is opinion in Ireland um, about that, or Republic of Ireland, or the South, whichever uh, terms I should use. And um, that you know, it's there's a vast majority who would say they are in favour of the United Ireland, but then there are questions about well, if people had to pay more tax, would they be? um, you know, if you drill down into that, is it aspirational or is it something that if there was a referendum? you know, in six months or in three months, would people actually vote for it? So I think it's it's unclear what the support would actually be under certain conditions. A big factor there in public opinion down here is the level of stability <clears throat> and reconciliation in Northern Ireland. <clears throat> so I think when, you know, certain things occur, which seem to be part of the past or which indicate instability, I do think that it would affect, you no know, hard evidence, but I think it would affect some opinion here about wanting a united Ireland. So my final point would be that there is a core division from what I can see. I'd like to hear other people's views. Um, but I think there's a core division between those who think you need reconciliation first on the island and that's going to take years. You need it in Northern Ireland and you need it on the island. Um, and then those that say that that will occur, won't occur really. You know, that if, if and that you have to just forge ahead because there will be a component who will never be reconciled. Um, to the idea of a united Ireland and you just have to to plan ahead based on what the majority wants, regardless of that. So the shared island unit and initiative of the Irish government, as a spearheaded by the Taoiseach, that emphasises more building reconciliation and building connections and funding projects to encourage dialogue and public policy cooperation um, and have a gradualist approach. Um, and I, as most people would know, that would be my my approach to, to favour reconciliation, unity of hearts um, and, and minds, even where there are differences, a building of respect for each other, because there's a lot of ignorance down here about Northern Ireland and about unionism and about British identity. Um, you know, I think a lot of issues which unionists would say are highly disrespectful and which show bigotry down here. I think there's a large element of that, which is simply ignorance. You know, I don't think it's deliberate bigotry. There's always bigots, there are some, yes, but I I don't think it's entirely that. So there's a lot to be built, a lot of knowledge needed down here because we developed as a separate state. And, you know, that was the policy of governments from the 20s not to recognise the border, but also conveniently to pocket Northern Ireland away and ignore what was happening and ignore what was happening to nationalists and to Catholics as well. So there's a lot to be learned down here. Um, and preparation. So my view would be the reconciliation first element. Um, But I know there are other views that would counter that that would say it's not possible. Um, So we, you know, so in terms of likelihood at the moment, there isn't a majority in favour. That's clear cut. I don't think opinion polls can be taken as the sole evidence. I think, you know, they can vary depending on methodology as well. So we have to be a little bit careful of that. but I think obviously Brexit has created huge changes and there are demographic changes as well. So muddled answer.
0: I suppose also point of information might be Northern Ireland has the option of automatically returning to the European Union as well and in the current context, which is an interesting dynamic happening on the island of Ireland that perhaps marks yeah. it out. And I should Jennifer,
1: have mentioned that, sorry. That's oh a big no, it's a good, in the it's
0: fascinating uh, range of points. Jennifer. Where is this going next in terms of the Good Friday Agreement provisions around concurrent referendums, do you think?
1: Okay, I mean, I think Aileen's concept of postponing is where it's happening in on the island of Ireland too and on the um, position of Northern Ireland. Um, I think, A, I don't think there's going to be a reconstruction of a viable um, post-Good Friday situation. I think that that's a bit pie in the sky. B, it's really hard to see how there's a movement forward to a written federal constitution that people would agree on with respect to Northern Ireland. And C, I'm not at all sure that the union is going to break up in the short term, because the, partly because of what Aitane has said. The major actors don't want it to. The British government is an interest in postponing the issue. Um, and as, as, as we said, because, um, you know, it's somehow hoping that perhaps things will get better if it does. The Irish government is an interest in postponing the issue and where I disagree with Attain is that I think the concept of reconciliation is simply an ideology being used to justify postponement as opposed to actually tackling the real issues involved. Um, and even in Northern Ireland, there's um, a 50% of the population who aren't sure what's happening, who say things in interviews like we need organic relationships, North and South, not just ideology. And so they don't mind postponing a bit either. So I think there's going to be a postponement. I don't know how long, but I think there is.
0: <laughs> a lot of postponement and trying to... Um which actually contrasts with a lot of discussion around preparation and planning that's going on at the moment as well in these comments. Michael, just to maybe pose a question in the UK, can a voluntary union hold constituent parts within the union against their will in the longer term, do you think? No, but
4: of course, that's never the question. It's always more
0: complicated
4: than that. And, uh, since you asked us where we we're going, well, I'd be given a £10 vote for every time I ask that question. <laughs> be set for life because there are too many factors at play there, but the settlement of were all attempts to try and get a middle ground between nationalism and unionism with with some initial success in three cases. But that middle ground is disappearing now, partly because of Brexit, but partly because the sovereignty question has returned in a big way and we might might think it's a rather meaningless concept in practice but as i said before it is being used by politicians in a very aggressive way on all sides as though that meant something uh, and then from this talk about scotland there is a polarization in in public opinion now which there wasn't before because the middle ground the devo max or independence lights which merge into each other was they the, uh, got a plurality it was the best most favorite option uh, since I've been looking at these things since the early 1970s, it's always been there. But that's disappearing now, that's shrinking, and it's no longer the most preferred option. Uh, and that there's a block of people about half the electric in Scotland are pro-independence, pro s both for the SNP and pro-EU. These used to cross-cut each other, they don't so much now. There's about 25% or hardiness, no referendum under any circumstances, pro-Brexit they're about 25% and they vote for the Conservative Party, which means there's only 25% of people to uh, to play for and they vote for the Labour Party or, or the Liberal Democrats. That's the kind of polarization you haven't seen before, which makes all the efforts that let's have federalism, which uh, my colleague Alvin Jackson calls the wonder drug of constitutional politics. You reach for federalism because it doesn't mean anything. And once you define it, then you realize that people can't agree on it. That middle ground is is, is, is shifting and, of course, the Brexit question. If you have a federation, is that federation inside or outside the EU? That is absolutely fundamental and you can't fudge it. It's either inside or or outside. So we don't know where things are going. Now, the short-term tactics are that neither side in Scotland wants a referendum because they'd both be fearful of losing it and in both cases it's their last chance. So there's no particular push. And no doubt, this will go on till the next UK election, which might be in as short as two years' time, and maximum two and a bit years' time already, so nothing decided. And, and then it goes on and on. Uh, can that be resolved? Can a union be held together? I keep on going back to presidents, and of course, since I know a lot about the history of Ireland, I go back to that. And between Gladstone's failed Home Rule Bill of the 1880s and 1890s and the 1922 settlement, uh, Nothing happened for most of that time. Dramatic interludes occurred: <laughs> the Second rule, Rule, the Easter Rising, of course. But between, the, but until the liberals came back in, needing the Irish Party for a parliamentary majority, the British parties didn't do anything about it, and it went on. Now, the outcome of that was, of course, the breakup of the union. But other factors in, intervened, so these standoffs can go on for a generation. And, and that, that might be what we're facing too now. The Scottish government, um, the Scottish electors, park part their votes with the SNP, which they'll probably will continue to do, or independence supporting parties, not because they think they're going to get independence, but because uh, it, 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 that this is the party that stands up for Scotland. So increasingly, we're seeing Scottish politics becoming self-referential. Increasingly, things are within a Scottish context, uh, the Scottish Parliament will no doubt get additional powers. The next big thing to, be to do with, with welfare, a Labour government would probably give them a, a, a lot of that. Uh, but the final break, we, we, we just don't know. This could this could go on for a very long time, particularly if there's no urgency on the part of the UK government. As long as the Conservatives can get a majority, without depending on Scotland at all, getting the risery number of seats in Scotland, uh, that, that could carry on. As for the principles underlying a new settlement, again, we've all been sceptical about, let's have a big bang constitution and write it down, that'll solve the problem. Uh, But nevertheless, uh, the principle of consent, I think, is something that used to be there. And one interpretation of the union is about consent. It it comes up all over the place in the Northern Ireland settlement. But it's also implicit in the Scottish settlement, way back to the union. This is by consent, uh, and consent has to be maintained. And it's not by a simple majority across the United Kingdom. That's that's not how the union is kept together. I don't see much evidence that the UK government is is conscious of that in the way that previous unionist governments were. Uh, the, 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 got, you have got to be aware of that and, and consent isn't. And it crops up in all sorts of places, including uh, I don't know aliens the lawyer here, but but including the various consent mechanisms in the various Brexit. This is a Brexit legislation. Consent and consent means consent. Except it doesn't mean consent, even legally. They try. It doesn't mean anything at all. But more important, as a general constitutional principle, it just seems to have disappeared. Until we get that back. And I know uh, some of the more uh, thinking unionists and, um, and people in the in the Conservative Party are, are, are grasping with that idea. Maybe that's where we have got to get back to, because that's somewhere in unionism is that idea which can be recovered and used as a basis of reaching some kind of ways of doing constitutional politics, not a big bang solution that's gonna fix the problem forever, but ways of doing constitutional politics that will allow us to, to carry on in the absence of an overall constitutional settlement.
0: Thank you very much. Thank you all of you. You'll be all delighted to know that this is the last question, right? So thank you, absolutely fascinating insights. And it's an entirely unfair question Right, but obviously the we're thinking about futures and constitutional futures. So I'm gonna put you on the spot for the last question, and uh, I'm gonna ask you to make a prediction. Right, it's totally unfair, but but why not? Let's let's go there. If we were gathering together again, perhaps in person in 2030, to to do this, what what do you think might have changed uh, in 2030, given what we know now, given the trends? That you've pointed out and I'm conscious the number of you said you didn't want to make any predictions at all about <laughs> next week, let alone 2030. So, but I'm going to ask you, what predictions would you make for the decade ahead? And I suppose slightly challenging question, will there be a UK in 2030? Michael?
4: <laughs> well, I'll go in an indirect way, which is to say that in in the last 50 years, uh, every 10 years or so, the, uh, the Unionist Party, particularly the Labour Party, comes and asks my advice about. So, back at the beginning, I said, You should have a Scottish Parliament. No, 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 we're going to do that. And then in the 80s, I said, Well, you've adopted a devolution. You should have a Parliament, called the Parliament, elected by proportional representation, define the reserve powers, not the devolved powers, and entrench the European Convention on Union rights. And he said, This is the leadership of the Labour Party. Very interesting, but Michael, that's totally unrealistic. <laughs> that's exactly what they, they did. Um, so I'm pretty good at predictions, <laughs> but I,
0: oh, okay, I give us know. one, then, Michael.
4: <laughs> My advice is always taken, but too late. <laughs> and now I'm saying to them things like I've been saying just now: you've got to get your head around the fact that this is a union, but I'm not convinced that that will happen in time. Uh, I think it's likely that there will be a referendum on Scottish independence at, at some point, and and probably an Irish referendum uh, as as well. Uh, If only because that's the only way you can at least justify the status quo, Uh, I think the unionists at some point in Scotland will realise that uh, we've got to renew consent for for, for the union, we can't go on like this forever, but it may may take a very long time. And if you look at Scottish opinion, again I'm evading giving my own answer to this question, (laughs) But all the only opinion polls, the surveys say, uh, most Scottish people think that Scotland will be independent within 30 years. Uh, 30 years ago, they said exactly the same thing. So there's this notion that the union is not permanent. It's always up in the air. And and now, even more so, it's not taken for granted. Uh, so, yes, an independence is, is entirely possible, but it won't be independence in the classic sense, because that doesn't mean anything. Uh, it, it will be independence embedded in a wider set of interrelationships with the rest of the UK and with the European Union. I won't go into the details of that because they're horrendously complicated. But that's, I think, what we'll, what, 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 where we'll get to, uh, whether we become independent or not. Uh, despite the fact that this third way is losing support, support for is shrinking, that's the only way we can resolve this problem. So we will eventually will muddle through to that situation. Uh, and, and get something that will work, but we will probably never get a consensus on its foundations.
0: I think there's a prediction in there somewhere. So excellent, <laughs> a- Aileen, twenty thirty. Yeah. I
3: <laughs> I've discovered I'm really bad at making predictions. So, um, uh, so I, I answered this with some trepidation. Um, I think, I think in 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 twenty thirty, we we might well be in much the same position. Um, I think we will see a decade of the enfeebling of devolution Um, for a good few years, yet we're going to see um, a very assertive UK government, centralising UK government. But it's difficult to see any of that cutting through in a very decisive way. If, if in terms of public opinion, if Brexit didn't cut through in a decisive way, it's very hard to see um, the cabining of of, of devolved autonomy uh, cutting through. So, so I think we 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 will be in this sort of same state of unsettlement, of tension, of poor poor relations. Um, but as I said, I'm extremely bad at predictions and uh, no doubt something will come along um, that um, that proves me completely wrong.
0: That's great. We'll probably be sitting here and I'll be asking, what are your predictions for 2040? <laughs> 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 Etienne, 2030, where, where, where will things be by then?
2: I'm really bad at predictions, having not predicted Brexit and not predicted many things <laughs> in my life. Um, so there's a health warning with this, definitely. I think um, a lot depends on the British government's behaviour. If if we have British governments behaving like this Conservative government, the chances of the breakup are much higher. I think I agree with Aileen. I, I think it's probably on balance. Unlikely um, in 10 years it will break up. Uh, beyond that, if you were to ask me, you know, for, for you know, another 20 years, I would say more likely I'd be on balance saying yes. But a lot depends on how British governments manage this. And a lot of the public opinion and divisions have been exacerbated by just precisely what Aileen has talked about and Michael, all of us, I suppose, on this very centralising British government with a return to traditional sovereignty, which will just exacerbate issues. And of course, the EU membership, that Colin, you know, kindly <laughs> reminded me of as being a huge factor in terms of the push for um, um, independence. From the different constituent parts so i would say on balance no it won't break up in 10 years but i'm uncertain so I'm, I'm hedging my bets um but a lot does depend beyond that and in the next 10 years on how british governments behave towards wales scotland and northern ireland particularly obviously scotland and northern ireland Thank you. and also on reconciliation to me it does i think there is a, a substantive policy issue there it's not just um my view is it's not just about postponing it. You know, I, I get the impression that Mijo Martin is very committed to it as a value and it has been permeating policy for decades, but
0: that's a separate issue. Great. Jennifer, twenty thirty.
1: 2030. The only thing I'm going to say with confidence is that we're going to have a more complex public in Northern Ireland, more complex mix of public views, more distancing from set Protestant Unionist, loyalist or Catholic nationalist Republican um, views. So there's going to be a more complex public. There's also going to be a more complex and perhaps hopefully more informed public in the South. And um, more than likely, even in England, some of the impact of Brexit will, will come clear. So you might have a more complex public there then. Um, what happens politically depends a lot in that context in Ireland on what projects are put forward for change. And um, I agree with Michael that the only way way change is going to work, this complex mix of independence, interdependence via consent, what that's going to look like and whether or not the complex publics are going to go for it depends on the political projects put forward. And right now I don't see the political projects. Now I know that the, this is what we're all talking about, but I don't see the project that can win the the enough consensus to go forward, um, or to go forward via, for example, for United Ireland, it may be different in Scotland.
0: Okay, well, th- thank you all very much. We can get together in 2030, and we can see where we are by then. This conversation, look, I-, I could listen to you all for for weeks and months. I could listen to you all until 2030, but we can't. We're 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 limited in the amount of time we have. Uh, today for this podcast. I just want to thank you all for sharing your incredibly valuable insights and reflections as part of the series. I want to wish you all the very best in your ongoing and vital work. Absolutely no doubt at all that this conversation is going to continue, it's going to run and run, but absolutely clear about one thing, it's going to be a much better informed conversation as a result of your excellent evidence-based expert contributions. So I just want to thank you all for joining us today. Thank you very much.